Well, good morning. My, uh, my first two years of college, I spent in, here in San Antonio on scholarship playing baseball at St. Mary's University. And when I went there, I was prepared to embark on what I was hoping to be one of the great college baseball careers of the 21st century. <laughs> now, it didn't end up that way, but it started off pretty good. Um, my first year at St. Mary's as a freshman, I was actually redshirted, but our team went on to win the NCAA Division II National Championship. Now, I contributed nothing other than gaining 15 pounds sitting on the bench eating sunflower seeds for 63 games. But nonetheless, we actually won the National Championship. The next year, I came back and a number of our seniors had graduated, so I had the opportunity to play. And so, I started playing a little bit more, and I'll never forget my first at-bat in college. We were playing Dallas Baptist University, who was a, who was a really good program, and, and they were just killing us. It was 10 to 1. And so one of our guys gets on base, and Coach Meagle looks over at me. He says, Loudermilk, go pinch run. So I get up off the bench. I run, you know, I stretch real fast. I get on first base, and I look around, and I realize, wow, I'm playing college baseball. But then the craziest thing happens. We start getting hit after hit after hit and scoring run after run after run until my place in the order is up to bat. But we're no longer down by nine runs, people. We're down by one. Bases are loaded. Two outs. Ninth inning. My heart is beating like crazy. And so I said, oh, my God, oh, my God, just kidding. No, so I took a deep breath, and I said, hey, louder milk. I talked to myself in the third person when it's really important. <laughs> I said, now is the time. The time is now. This is your moment. You can do this. So I step in the batter's box, 50,000 people going crazy, <laughs> maybe like 500, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> doesn't really matter, right? I step in the batter's box, and the pitcher for Dallas Baptist throws me a fastball. And that thing looked like a grapefruit. And I just turn on it, and I hit a missile to left field for a single two-run score. St. Mary's 11, Dallas Baptist 10. And I'm, yes, come on. Came through in the clutch. And it was an incredible moment. Just a great, great moment, an improbable moment, but it was one that I was ready for. Because you see, I had spent hours upon hours upon hours working out in the batting cage. Hours upon hours where people were going out or having fun in college, and I was by myself at the, at the stadium there at St. Mary's working, hitting the ball off the tee by myself, putting in the time, preparing myself for when that moment came. And I think what what we can say is that there's a parallel between that preparation and our spiritual life. Now, we cannot guarantee that every time we get up in the the ninth inning that we're going to hit a game-winning single for God. We cannot guarantee that. But what we can do is we can prepare ourselves in such a way and cultivate certain habits That when that opportunity arises, we know what to do with it. Cultivating that intimate relationship with God. So when the opportunity arises to be used, we are ready to be used by God. 
And our passage this morning is going to focus on an individual who walked that path and I think has a lot to teach us. So I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 8 as we continue our journey through the book of Acts by looking once again at a guy by the name of Philip, a faithful, faithful brother, kind of an unsung hero of the Bible that was faithful to God, faithful to God's call upon his life and a blessing to others in the process. Now, if you recall from last week, Philip was in Jerusalem at the time of the persecution that arose after Stephen's martyrdom. And so he flees, like many of the believers, and Philip flees northward to the area of Samaria. And at Samaria, Philip preaches the gospel to these hated, half-breed, heretical Samaritans. But an amazing thing happens. They respond and they come to faith. And there's this revival in Samaria. And so when we come to our verse 25 this morning, Philip has already had a tremendous impact on the early church. You may think that he would just want to kick back and relax, kick his feet up, you know, do a little Netflix binge and just kind of decompress. But God has other plans for him. God has work for him to do. And we're going to see that this morning. And as we walk through this passage this morning, I want us to notice the habits that Philip has. I want us to notice the consistent patterns of behavior that we see in Philip's life. Habits that had been cultivated by the Holy Spirit in Philip and led him to a place that when opportunity arose, he was ready and he responded accordingly. So we begin on verse 25. It says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. And were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So remember, when these Samaritans came to faith, we talked about last week, John and Peter get word. The apostles get word. And so they leave Jerusalem and they head up to Samaria to investigate what's going on. And along the way, they authenticate that God has done a mighty work in the Samaritans. They lay hands on them. The Holy Spirit descends. And you have basically what is a Samaritan Pentecost. And then Peter and John leave Samaria. And they go back to Jerusalem preaching the gospel along the way. But Philip stays in Samaria. At least that is until he gets word to go somewhere else. Because Philip is told by an angel of the Lord to go to Gaza. The far southern region of Israel near Egypt. And what is he to do there? It doesn't say. He's just told, hey, this is what you need to do. You need to go. And it is not clear what exactly this looked like for the angel of the Lord to come speak to Philip. But as we will see in verse 29 and other places in chapter 8, what is clear is that Philip consistently heard from the Lord. He consistently heard from the Lord. And this brings us to our first habit this morning that Philip possesses that every one of us in here can learn from. And that is that Philip had room in his life to hear from God. He had room in his life to hear from God. It has been my experience, but more importantly, the consistent pattern of Scripture, that for us to consistently hear from the Lord, we have to consistently make time and make room for Him. We have to make room for the Lord. And this isn't just true of Peter. Think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus did. He would minister hard, 
And then he would come out and he would leave to pray and be by himself. He would enter into intensity and then retreat out for intimacy. That was his rhythm. He made room in his life to hear from the Father. And if that was important to the Son of God, then I think there's something that we can glean from that as well. Now when I say hear from God, I'm not describing some mystical experience untethered from the truth of God. What I'm describing is making room in our life to hear from the Lord through His Scripture, which 2 Timothy tells us is the very breath of God, the very words of God. Making room in our life to hear from God through prayer as we communicate with Him through His Spirit that He has given us. And making room to hear from the Lord as we meditate, as, as Psalm 1 says, that we meditate on His, we delight in the law of the Lord. And on His truth we meditate both day and night. And yet the reality is many of us in here struggle with this. We struggle with these things. And the question is why? Why do we struggle to make room to hear from the Lord? What is it that is getting in the way? And there are probably many reasons that we could list. And it would be different upon different, for different people. But I think there's three categories, at least in my experience, in my own life, as well as in the many people that I meet with. There's three things that seem to be commonly, common things that block our intimacy with God and keep us from hearing from the Lord. So I want to talk about each one of those briefly. The first one is sin. The first thing that really gets in the way from us hearing from the Lord is sin, and especially unconfessed sin. You see, sin distorts our view of God. It calluses our sensitivity to God. And it can destroy our intimacy with God. And when you think about our enemy, and he is real, he has two great weapons at his arsenal that he loves to use. Two great weapons. One is deception. And the other one's accusation. He is a deceiver and he is an accuser. And so he deceives us and he takes us away from God and thus numbing us to our sin. So we can't even feel it anymore. And then he also accuses us and hopes to shame us of our sin. Both weapons being used for the intention of keeping us from having intimacy with God. From keeping us from having any desire to be near to God and to certainly keep us from making room in our life to hear from God. And so this brings a question for all of us that we need to answer. Is there a sin or a sin pattern in your life that is blocking you from the, 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 the light that is the Lord? Is there a sin or sin pattern in your life that's distorting your view of God and desensitizing you to the truth of God? 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, John writes, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And yet a few verses later in verse 9, John writes, But if we confess with our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first thing we need to ask is, there's a sin or sin pattern in my life that's keeping me from making room to hear from God. The second thing that often gets in the way is busyness. We are a busy people. 
whether it's your job or your responsibilities at home, your social groups, your fitness classes, our kids' sports teams, our favorite Netflix shows. These things get in the way. And these are not bad things. These can be great things. But they also can become things that without us even knowing it, take over our life and eliminate the room necessary to hear from the Lord. And they can become thus destruction, destructive and idolatrous. That's why making a schedule is a spiritual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. And if you do not schedule time with God, the reality is it's most likely not going to happen. It's most likely not going to happen. And while we are told, I understand 1 Thessalonians 5, that we are to pray without ceasing. And Colossians 3, that we are to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated. And that is a minute-by-minute, second-by-second habit of devotion. I think we can be honest that there's something unique and special about setting aside time devoted to God and to meeting with our Lord. But if you do not schedule it, it probably will not happen. Like the story of Mary and Martha where one sister is working feverishly to serve the Lord and the other one's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. We in our busy lives need to hit the pause button every once in a while and turn off the phone and put away the iPad and come and sit at the feet of our king. We need to unplug so that we can reconnect. Lastly, the third reason why many of us struggle, I think, to make room to hear from the Lord is that we are spiritually lazy. Now, I'm not saying we are lazy people, but we often are spiritually lazy. We are, in many ways, a product of a culture that values things like efficiency, immediacy, feeling, and entertainment. And those things can infiltrate from culture and find their way inside our spiritual life. And as a result, we tend to suffer from this kind of microwave Christianity mentality where we want spiritual growth, but we want it now. We want it fast. We want it to be fun. And we want it for free without the investment. But that is not the way that God designed it to be. Because the Christian life is not defined by kind of just a frolicking from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. The Christian life is defined by a long, slow obedience in the same direction. A long, slow obedience in the same direction where we put one foot after the other in spite of our surroundings. This is the way that God designed it. As the great G.K. Chesterton notes, The Christian ideal has never been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian life takes work. It takes discipline. It takes commitment. I think so many of the illustrations in in the scriptures are farming. It's hard work. It takes time to cultivate these things. So sin, busyness, and spiritual laziness can certainly get in the way of us making room to hear from God. And I'm as guilty as anybody. I need a course correction. We all do. We all can grow in these areas. 
But what Philip shows us next is it's not enough to just hear from the Lord. It's not enough to just listen to the word of God. The question then is, what will we do with what we've heard? How will we respond? Philip responds with obedience. Verse 27, it says, so he got up and went. He got up and went. God said, jump. Philip said, how high? God said, go. Philip said, I'm there. And he went. And he's on his way to Gaza. He was obedient. And this is going to be a pattern for Philip. There's going to be a pattern for this guy. When he encountered the word of God, he responded with obedience to God. When he encountered the word of God, he responded with obedience to God. There's a phrase in our household that my wife and I use a lot. We have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And so the phrase that they can recite word for word, which they should because it's three words. But we look at them and we say, Elijah, Luke, listen and obey. But yeah, 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 yeah. No. Your job is to listen to what I'm saying and to respond with obedience. Listen and obey. I would love to tell you that works every time. It doesn't, but they know the phrase. We're working on it. And then we define obedience, thanks to the coaching of Bill Mitchell. And we define obedience as doing what you're asked, when you're asked, with a joyful heart. Obedience is doing what you're asked, when you're asked, with a joyful heart. And that is how Philip responds. And yet I think if we were to be honest, the problem of most of our spiritual lives is not one of knowledge. It's one of obedience. It's not a lack of understanding. It's a lack of submission. It's a lack of submission. It's not enough to just know the truth. The question is, will we be obedient to the truth? Will we listen and obey? Philip made room to hear from God. And then when he heard, he responded with obedience to God, even though it took him far from where he thought he was going to be. And instead of staying in Samaria or heading to Jerusalem, he ends up in Gaza. And instead of just walking in the blessing of the ministry of Samaria or hobnobbing with the apostles in Jerusalem, he's sent on his way to meet with one guy, an Ethiopian eunuch on a dusty road. And this is what we find in verse 27. It says, So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, this guy is fascinating. He's basically the minister of finance for the kingdom of Ethiopia, which is not necessarily the country of Ethiopia right now. It's a massive kingdom to the south of Egypt. And he's in charge of the kingdom finances. Okay? So he's a pretty important guy. And it says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Guys, this is a journey from Africa to Jerusalem here. This is a journey. And, and what Philip most likely was is what is called a God-fearer. The scriptures call these guys God-fearers. They were people who were not Jewish. They were Gentile. But they had a strong affection and respect and admiration for the God of Israel. And so they went to worship. Some of them even were converted. 
But one of the ways that you had, one of the things you had to do to be converted, and this is not inconsequential to our story, is you had to be circumcised. You had to be circumcised. You know who is a really bad candidate for a circumcision? A eunuch. Yes. He's a bad candidate. And so we have this God-fearing eunuch who works for the queen. And because of that, he is wealthy. And because he is wealthy, he is able to purchase a scroll of the book of Isaiah. These things were not easy to come by. Very, very rare. But he purchased this scroll. And this scroll may have been 29 feet long like the one they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a huge deal. And so here's the scene. Desert, dusty road. Caravan on this road. Fancy carriage. Inside a royal court official. The queen of Ethiopia. With the scroll of the book of Isaiah. Reading aloud. Because that's what the ancients did in that time. Even they're by themselves. They're reading aloud. And he's reading a text. And he has no idea who it's describing. He has no idea how it applies to his life. At least not yet. Right? Because guess who's also there? Philip's there. You remember what God sent Philip to do in Gaza? Neither do I. Neither does he. Right? God told him to go, so he went. And the great evangelist, who had led many to faith in Samaria of all places, a guy who had preached to the thousands probably, finds himself far from Jerusalem, far from Samaria, on a dusty road, probably asking himself, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? But he walks by faith. He trusts in the Lord that God has a plan even on that desert road. And he sees the caravan coming and he knows exactly what the plan is. And once again, Philip, walking with int- in intimacy with God, providing room to hear from God, responds with obedience to God. Look at verse 29. It says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And Philip, what? Ran. Ran. He hears the word of the Lord, and he doesn't just walk. This chariot's moving, and he runs up to the chariot. And he's probably jogging alongside, talking to this guy. And he says, hey, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, the eunuch says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And so Philip follows the Spirit's lead, and the Spirit leads him into the eunuch's chariot for a supernatural encounter. A couple of years ago, I was sitting in my office, and I got a call from downstairs, and I said, Michael, there's somebody here in the office that wants to meet with you. He wants to talk with you. And so I said, okay, send him up. And there's about 45 seconds from the office, to my, from the office downstairs to my office. And so in that 45 seconds, I'm doing what we do where we go, okay, God, please give me wisdom. Help me speak a word into this guy. I don't know what he wants to talk about. The, the, the range of issues is endless. And so I'm just asking for wisdom. And this guy comes into my office, early 20s, sharp guy. But I've never met him. And he sits down and he looks at me and he says, Hey, I recently graduated college. I just got home. I'm leaving for law school in two weeks. But here's the deal. I really want to be a Christian and I really want to follow Jesus. Can you help me with that? I was like, absolutely. 
And I had preached that Sunday, so I figured, man, God really used my sermon. So I said, oh, so you were there at church on Sunday. He's like, no, I have no idea who you are. I was like, sweet, even better. Even better. I mean, almost, it was awesome. And so we open up our Bibles. I open up the Bible. I start walking them through the gospel. Do you understand this? Do you believe this? Yes, I do. We pray together. We talk about growing in Christ. I give him resources. A few weeks later, he's baptized. I mean, that was a good meeting. That was a question I'm willing to deal with every single day. And fortunately for Philip, the eunuch is about to ask him a similar question. And they're about to have a similar encounter. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? This guy is hungry for the word. He's hungry to understand, but the problem is he doesn't get it. And there was much debate within Judaism, even today, of who is the one speaking? Who's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? And some said, well, that is Israel. And some said, no, that is, that is Isaiah. Or some said, no, that's the future Messiah. But Philip knows exactly who it is. And on verse 35, one of the best verses you could ever come across, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Isn't that amazing? I would imagine that when Philip saw the eunuch or heard the eunuch reading Isaiah chapter 53, just a big smile came across his face. I mean, the most famous chapter of messianic prophecy and the entire old testament what many have called the first gospel here in isaiah and philip knows exactly what to do with this gentleman and he preaches jesus to him do not miss the fact that not only did philip make room to hear from god and then respond with obedience to god but he was ready to be used by god he was ready he was ready to be used he had put in that long, slow obedience in the same direction. He knew the scriptures. He had sat under the apostles' teaching. He was ready to articulate the gospel. He was ready to be used. And God uses him in his obedience to preach the gospel of grace to this man who is desperate for it. He's just desperate for it. And then God did what only God can do. God brings the eunuch to faith in Jesus Christ. And what is beautiful, I don't want you to miss this, incredibly special, is that this Gentile who couldn't join the people of God in part because what happened to his physical body becomes the first Gentile to be saved in the church because of what happened to Jesus' body. As he comes to understand that he was crushed for our iniquities and that by his wounds we are healed. An Ethiopian eunuch with a mutilated body becomes the first non-Jew ever in the body of Christ. The first one ever. As it goes from the Jew to the Samaritan to the Gentile and the ends of the earth. And this man who was depressed and confused, sitting in his chariot, now finds himself forgiven. 
and looking for baptismal waters on the lookout. Verse 36. And they went along the road. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When you see those brackets, it just means that that verse was not in the, earlier, the earliest manuscripts. But it doesn't affect the message one way or the other. This guy's ready to get baptized. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. And this royal official, in his royal clothes, riding in his royal chariot, says, stop. And he gets out. And he removes himself from the royal chariot. He removes his royal clothes. And he humbles himself. And he says, I want to get baptized because I belong to God. I'm part of the family. This has been a passage that I've always found wonderful. But it took a new meaning in my life in the not too distant past. So I want to be a little bit vulnerable here, if you'll let me. Um, And hopefully this is not self-indulgent. My prayer is really that the Lord will use my story to maybe speak into some of your lives. My, my journey with, um, through baptism. I was raised in the Episcopal Church. And because of that, I was baptized as an infant. And I would imagine there's some of you in here who share common truth with me in that regard. Whether if you were raised Catholic or you were raised Episcopal or you were raised Presbyterian or Methodist, the reality is that most likely you were baptized as an infant. And though I was baptized as an infant and was brought up in the Episcopal Church, my faith came alive when I was 16 years old at a Young Life camp in Colorado. That's when the gospel penetrated my heart, and that's when I believed. And I came home with a strong faith, with an assurance of my salvation, a hunger to, for Christ's likeness, a desire to learn the scriptures, a heart for ministry, and those have never left me. But what I did not come home with was a desire to get baptized. Because nobody ever talked to me about it. Nobody ever talked to me about it. And later on, when I started going to a Bible church, I would, I would see people profess their faith and get baptized, but I kind of felt like the opportunity maybe had passed me by. Because I was baptized as an infant, and then it had been some time since I had come to faith as a teenager. And over the years, as I studied the issue further, and I talked to people about it, I began to have doubts about the legitimacy of infant baptism just became to doubt it. All the while telling you, quite frankly, many of my heroes dead and alive, dead and alive, affirmed the practice of infant baptism. But when I really engaged the issue in seminary, it became clear, at least to me, that the best understanding of baptism is what we know as a believer's baptism, also called a credo baptism. As you have seen as we've gone through the book of Acts, the biblical pattern for baptism is one that is post-conversion. Baptism is consistently shown in the scriptures to be an outward public testimony of faith that's done by someone who is already a believer. And if you're somebody who just loves diving into the weeds on this stuff, and you're like, well, Michael, why do you believe that? I would encourage you just to Google John MacArthur, Case for Believer's Baptism. Tremendous resource where he gives a tremendous defense for the doctrine of a believer's or credo baptism. And so I came to this place where I said, okay, no, believer's baptism is the way, but that leaves me with an issue. I got to get baptized. I got to get baptized. 
I knew it did not affect my salvation, but I had a deep conviction in my soul that this needs to happen. And this fever, this, this, this conviction re- reached a fever pitch one Friday night. And I felt like the eunuch saying, okay, this needs to happen now. The time is now. This needs to get done ASAP. So the next morning I wake up and, and I text Roger. Saturday morning. I'm sure that's who he wanted to hear from. I said, Roger, can we meet? I'm sure that's a question he wanted to hear. And he texts me back and he says, hey, I'm at the church working on the sermon. Come on up. Which is, by the way, just shows the heart of our senior pastor. He's working on a Saturday. And when one of his pastoral team members says, hey, I got an issue, he says, let's talk. Puts the sermon away. Just a great, great shepherd. And so I get up there and I say, Roger, here's my deal. Here's my jury. Here's my story. Here's where I'm at. But I want to get baptized. And Roger looks at me and he smiles. He says, Mike, that is wonderful. Let's walk across the parking lot and do it right now. And I was like, like right now? <laughs> like right now, right now? You know? He's like, yeah, call Victoria. Get the boys up here. Let's do it today. And we couldn't, our, my family couldn't do it that morning, but we decided to do it at noon, which was even better because that allowed us to contact the pastoral team and the elders and my small group. And so I got baptized right there one Saturday morning while I was on staff at Wayside. And, I'll, I'll, and it was just a moment that I'll never forget. I mean, it was just so, so special. Um, but I, I was a little bit hesitant to share this story with you because a little bit embarrassed. I should have gotten baptized. And I didn't get baptized. And I'm on a pastoral staff. And I hadn't had a believer's baptism. And I'm sure none of y'all struggle with insecurity. (laughs) But I was like, I mean, what are people going to think about that? But what I've come to realize is that God walked me this path for a reason. And I believe part of that reason was to share it with you. Because I know many of you in here have had a believer's baptism. And that's wonderful. Praise God. But I would also imagine that there's a number of folks in here who know the Lord as Savior but have either never been baptized or you were baptized as an infant and you've either felt embarrassed, confused, or indifferent towards baptism because of it. And my heart is to tell you that you don't need to be embarrassed, you don't need to be confused, and you don't need to be indifferent. What we need to be is obedient. It's just obedient. Because when we hear the word of God, we are to respond in obedience to God. And so we as a church want to come around alongside you and create a space for that to happen. So if you will look inside your bulletin, you'll see this handout that says baptism celebration. God is doing a great work in Wayside. We, we, we see it through the, the sanctuary reconfiguration And also we see it through the amount of people who are wanting to get baptized. And because of that, we have such a backlog. Sometimes people want to get baptized and we say, hey, that's great. We can get you in two or three months. And we just don't think that's acceptable. So the pastoral team prayed about this and and talked about this. And we said, let's do something different. And so we're going to have a baptism celebration two weeks from today at 1230 after the 11 o'clock service. We will dismiss you. You can, if you need to leave, go. If you need to get your kids, go get your kids. Y'all, y'all do what you need to do. But anybody who 
has, feels God stirring in their heart right now. And they're like, man, Michael, you are talking right to me. We want you to follow through and take that step of obedience. And I would love for you to get baptized that day at 1230. And we will stay here as long as necessary to baptize each and every person who feels that call on their life. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to just take this step of obedience and, and fill this sheet out. You can fill it out. Three lines, not a lot of work. And then after the service, you can just go to the Welcome Center and you can hand it to one of them. And we will contact you this week and talk to you more about that and kind of what that's going to look like. But if God is moving in your heart right now and convicting you, I pray that you would take that step because it's going to be a wonderful day and a wonderful time. And I hope you will join us one way or the other. It says, so Philip made room to hear from God. He responded with obedience to God. He was ready to be used by God. And ultimately, he reaped the blessing of God. Look at verse 39. It says, When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. You know, the Lord did not need Philip to save the eunuch. He's plenty capable. He is God. And He is sovereign. And salvation is of the Lord. And yet the Lord chose to use Philip through his obedience to communicate the gospel to the eunuch, which led to the man's life and eternity to be forever changed. And the man went away rejoicing. See, when you make room to hear from God and you respond with obedience to God and you are ready to be used by God, you will reap immense blessing from God as you get to partake in moments that make life so rich Roger and I are forever linked for a number of reasons but for one of those because he baptized me up there and that is special I'm forever linked to that guy named Zach who came into my office that day because of what we shared and not only that I'm going to marry him not marry him I'm going to officiate <laughs> That's not on the manuscript. Okay. Strike that. Strike that. All right. I'm going to officiate his wedding in August in Italy. This was a great meeting, guys. Stuff keeps on giving. But what Zach and I shared, we're connected for life. And, and we, are, we have a special bond because of that. Because we reap the blessings that the Lord provides as we walk in intimacy and obedience to him. And then we share our lives and we give of ourselves to those around us. Now, I want to close this morning with a truth that I think is really important to communicate. While the eunuch left rejoicing and Philip was miraculously taken to a new place to preach the gospel, which in itself, that's just amazing. It's a miracle. The reality is that not every story has a happy ending, does it? Not every story has a happy ending like this one. I began this sermon by talking about my first ever at bat in college. What I did not tell you was what happened after that at bat. My single, we scored 10 runs in the top of the ninth inning, capped off by a two-run single by yours truly. In the bottom half of the ninth inning, Dallas Baptist scored two runs with two outs and beat us 12 to 11. 
And on top of that, I went on, I proceeded to get only two more hits in my entire collegiate baseball career. I transferred from St. Mary's to Texas A&M, not really because I was dying to be an Aggie, but because I had completely failed at college baseball. St. Mary's paid me $8,000 per hit. That's how bad I failed. And, and it was devastating. It was devastating. Now, God had a plan for that. And me standing up here and being married to my wife and having the boys that I have, that doesn't happen, I think, if I have a great baseball career. So I'm not changing my life for anything. But that was hard. And yet such is life. Such is life. Life is hard. And such is life following Christ. Make no mistake, it is where life is found. It is a life full of blessing. But it is not easy. It's not easy. And while there will be moments of great celebration and indescribable joy when you're standing on first base as the hero, there will be moments of terrible heartbreak when you're left sitting by yourself in the dugout after a devastating loss. That is a reality. But it is in those times of heartache, those times when you are alone in the dugout of life, a place where you may be sitting right at this moment, that we must remember and remind each other of a precious truth that this is not our home. This is not our home. And that the best is yet to come. And this is what we celebrate. And this is what we remember as we come to the communion table. Because as we talk this morning, spiritual maturity, that is, that is being, making room in your life to hear from God. It is responding with obedience to God. It is being ready to be used by God and is reaping the blessings of God. But those blessings of God can only come through the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just love verse 35 where it says that Philip opened his mouth and he preached from this scripture and he preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus. He preached about the Son of God who left heaven and came to earth. He preached about the one who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who lived a perfect life, who willingly went to the cross to die for our sins, who was raised from the dead on the third day, and who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that has no end. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, we look back at what he's did and we look ahead for what is to come. And so I invite you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are someone who has received that free gift of salvation that comes by grace through faith, then we invite you to partake and to share in communion with us. I'm going to invite the men forward, and they're going to pass out the elements. They're going to pass out a little piece of bread, and they're going to pass out a little cup. And the bread represents Christ's body that was sacrificed for you. The cup represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Please take this time and go before the Lord and thank him. Confess to him. And we will hold, please hold on the elements and we will take these together in a moment.
What an amazing day. And what an amazing truth that must have been to maybe stand next to John the Baptist when he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a piece of bread, but what it represents is so much more. Christ's body that was sacrificed for you and me. Eat this in remembrance of him. What we hold here is grape juice. But it has so much more than that. It's Christ's blood that was shed for us. The book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Drink this in remembrance of him. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your graciousness, your mercy, and your love. We thank you, Father, for sending the Son who died in our place for the sin of the world. God, we thank you for the Spirit that you sent to seal us and indwell us and to conform us to the image of the Son, a process that will take our entire life. And yet one day, when we reach glory, we will be as we were created to be, as we will see you face to face. And God, we plant our our flag firmly in that hope. God, help us to be people that make room to hear from you that respond with obedience to you, that are authentically ready to be used by you, and that, God, that we may share and reap the blessing that it is to know you and to serve you and to love you. Make that the cry of our heart. And may we be like Philip, that when the opportunity comes, it says, he preached Jesus to him. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for this morning. And we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Folks, we invite you back at 2 p.m. for the town hall on the seating reconfiguration here and encourage you to fill out those sheets if God's moved in your heart and you can take them to the Welcome Center. The rest of y'all have a wonderful Sunday and we'll see you back next week.